You guys gonna have a seat? All right, church, well, go ahead and grab a Bible, your own or your neighbor's, I don't care. Uh, grab a Bible and go to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John. And we are going to be picking it up in John 3.16, where we're going to start this morning. And if you are using one of those Black Pew Bibles, that will be on page 888. 888. Now, as you are turning there, I just want to say it's a great joy of mine to be able to continue our short sermon series looking at the doctrine of the Trinity, one that we began a few weeks back and will be in for a couple more weeks. And in case you're not familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, what the doctrine of the Trinity is, is a historical orthodox way of looking at what does the Bible say about who God is? What is the very nature of who God is? And Christians have been confessing the reality of what the Scriptures teach by using this word Trinity, that we believe in one God, one true God, but yet that one God has eternally existed as three different persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Not multiple gods, but one God, yet three and although we will not find that word Trinity in the Bible, right, if you don't go in the back of your Bible in the concordance, you won't find the word Trinity. As we've been looking at over the last several weeks, we believe, though, this is what the Scriptures teach about the nature of God. For example, even in the very beginning, when God created everything, we see when God created humanity, He said, let us make man in our image. Now, who was God talking to? Who was the us? Who was the our? Well, God was speaking using that triune language of even though he was only making humanity in his image, in the image of God, yet there's that threeness to it. Additionally, our very first week, we look at the words of Jesus. When he commissioned the disciples to go out and to preach the gospel, to tell uh, basically the whole world about what he had done, who God is, why is there good news in the person and work of Christ? And Jesus said, go and make disciples in the singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Showing us that our very mission as a church, really even the foundation to the gospel, is built among the reality of the Trinity. And then last week, we took some time to consider what was God doing before creation? What was God doing before anybody was here, before the world was created? What was God like in himself? How does the Trinity relate to itself? And in short, we learn that God has been eternally Father, eternally the Son, and eternally the Spirit. That they did not become those when creation was created, but have always been and will always be. And furthermore, we learn that God's attributes are His essence. Which is a fancy way of saying that God is not merely a loving God, but that God is love. And that is reflected with the reality of the Trinity. And the perfect love in which God the Father has for God the Son 
is then the very love in which Jesus actually desired his people to have. It's the very love in which the whole Bible is trying to get us to know and to understand, church. So in case you've missed the last two weeks, I really do encourage you to go back and try to listen to those because they set, I think, a really healthy foundation for what is the Trinity. Why is it important for us, for Christians, to understand and believe? But what I want to do for the next three weeks, church, is take our understanding, right, that foundation that we've built upon the Trinity of how God has always existed, and then look at how does the Trinity then actually work in creation? And specifically, how does the Trinity work in the salvation of sinners like you and I? How does that Trinity actually matter for our salvation? Theologians often refer to this as the economic Trinity. The economic Trinity. That's why you'll see that um, in your, in your uh, liturgy, there's the economy of the Father. That's what we're going to be looking at today. Because what the economic trinity is trying to get at is how does the Father, how does the Son, how does the Spirit take those very that attributes and essence of who He is and put it on display in the created world? That's what the economic trinity is all about. How does it put it on display so people like you and I can see it, we can embrace it, and we can be changed by it forever. But before we actually look at that economic trinity, I do need to teach you one more fancy theological term, which I feel like there's been a lot during this, this series, but that's okay. These are important, okay? So what I need to tell you about is what, and I hinted at this last week, it's known as the inseparable operations of God. The inseparable operations of God. Meaning, that when it comes to God, the work of God in salvation in particular, we don't have these separate missions of the Godhead. We don't have this team of three gods who each perform their own actions in isolation from the rest. God does not work on his own. There's no division of labor between the Godhead. Here's where I'm getting at. This is why it's important. Because when we look at some of the divine roles of the Trinity, you could easily start to misunderstand or misapply the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity, for example, saying that the Father does this, but the Son does not do that, didn't even know about it, wouldn't even wanted the Father to do that. Or the Spirit does this, and He does it on His own. The Father's not involved in it at all. The Son's not involved in it at all either. In the same way, it would be right and it would be appropriate for us to say that Jesus, God the Son, is the one who died on the cross, not God the Father. So we do point out that it was God the Son who died on the cross. But it's not at the exclusion that God the Father was not involved in that. Does that make sense? So when we talk about these inseparable operations of God, it's important for us just to have a a background when we talk about the works of the Father, which we're going to do this week. I'm not saying that the works of the Father are against or in absence of the Son and the Spirit at work. Okay? All right, there's there's that mini theological lesson today. Actually, probably not. There'll be more. 
All right, so we are going to highlight the work of the Father today, the work of the Father, the economy of the Father. And I want to do that by actually looking at a very, uh, maybe well-known passage for us, that well-known passage of John 3.16. But I want to look at it through this perspective of, but what does this teach us about God the Father? What does this teach us about God? him and his work and his desire for his people. That's what we're going to do. But let's go ahead and pray first, and then we'll read the text. Please pray for me as I pray for you. Father, as we're about to just open up your word and, and take just a, a wonderful look at, at, Father, what you have done, what you have done through the, before the foundation of the world, what you have done through your created world, God, we are desperate for you just to give us eyes to see, ears to hear exactly who you are. God, I pray for our kids and the teachers next door. God, as, as they look at just the wonderful news that, that the gospel is for all people and that each and every one of us, no matter what age we are, all of us inside of this building today God, we desire and we pray and we ask you that we would be able to walk out of here loving you more than when we first walked in. Because how great would that be, Lord? We want to love you more and we want to love who you are. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, John 3, 16 and 17. It should be on the screen. But let me go ahead and just read it for us. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God indeed. Now, I believe that this passage is well known for actually really good reasons. Really good reasons. It's one of the most succinct summaries of the gospel. That where we see that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Because it is through the son that eternal life could be offered to us. Now, we will look at why that is the case, why it is through the, through the Son that eternal life is offered next week. But for our time this morning, as I've already mentioned, we're going to be spending a, a, a narrowed focus on what does this teach us about God the Father? God the Father. What does this teach us about Him? Now, I know, even from the onset of, of this whole topic, when I mention God as Father, that can conjure up a whole lot of feelings. A whole lot of, of, of thoughts about fatherhood in general. And often we begin to have these feelings or these thoughts, usually based off of our earthly fathers. Our earthly fathers. And so I need to say this on the front end. You cannot primarily look at God the Father through the lens of your earthly father. Okay? Even, and hear me on this, even if you had a great dad, 
or have a great dad right now. Even the best dads on this earth still fail in comparison to rightly show us who God the Father truly is. We make mistakes. God the Father doesn't. We disappoint our children. God the Father doesn't. But even though that is the case, God does, does still want to be understood in how he has revealed himself. And we talked about this last week. God has revealed himself as Father primarily. right Before he was creator, before he was ruler, before he was judge, God is Father. He always has been. He always will be. So that way, then, one of the best ways for us to actually understand God as Father is instead of looking at it through the lens of right, our earthly dad's relationship with us as sons or daughters, we need to look at God the Father's relationship with God the Son and start to put those pieces together, going, oh, this is what fatherhood is like. This is what it means for God to be a perfect heavenly father. Because who God is within himself, church, is the God then that will be observed by us today. So the first thing that I want you to look at in this passage, go ahead and look back at verse 16. The first thing that I want you to see is that the father is a loving father, right? The first thing that we see is for God so loved, right? He's a loving father. He's not distant, right? He actually knows what's going on, and he actually cares about his creation. What we're reading in John 3, 16 is Jesus actually describing if you know the context of this passage, that's Jesus meeting with this religious ruler named Nicodemus, who Nicodemus is trying to understand who God is. What does it mean to actually know him and to follow him? And one of the first things that Jesus teaches Nicodemus is, if you want to know God, if you actually want to know who all, all of who God is, you start here. And you start with knowing that he is loving. You start with knowing that he is a giving father. You need to know that he is a sending father. That in sending of his son was actually a window then to who he is. Because why did God the Father send Jesus? That's a, that's a question we should ask. Why did God the Father send Jesus? Well, clearly in this passage it says because of his love for the world, right? That's, that's right there. It's plain, which is true. And by the way, we have to make note that it's not just a love for the world in general, but really what we'll see throughout the corresponding passages is that this love that God the Father has, it's, it's a special, unique love for those who belong to him. It was a love for those who would believe and trust in the work of his son, and although that is magnificent in and of itself, right, that God would love people in that way, we actually know from last week that there's actually a, a reason behind God so loving the world. There's a love behind the love for the world, so to speak. And we saw this in John 17, 26. John 17, 26. It'll be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Because there is even more to God sending the Son. This is from Jesus' prayer to the Father. He says this, I made known to them your name, 
and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That in sending of the Son, the Father was actually making himself known. He was making himself known in a unique way. That he desired that the love in which he had for the eternal Son would actually then overflow into the world. So the reason why God so loved the world was because of his perfect love he had for the Son. It was overflowing. And so Jesus is saying, Father, don't you want them to know you? Don't you want them to know you the way that I know you? And the answer is yes. That's why he sent his Son. It's so we could actually know God as Father in the same way that Jesus knows the Father. That's pretty magnificent. It's pretty magnificent. And it also would have been pretty radical, too. It would have been pretty radical for someone to say that. It was scandalous in that day. When Jesus spoke about God being his Father, it was scandalous, church. Right? We take it for granted. We hear that language, I think, a lot of the time. That's okay. But we sometimes miss the punchiness that actually is accompanied by it. Because there's a difference between calling God Father and calling God your Father. Your Father. Because although, listen, God in a kind of a macro way, God is the creator of all things. So in some ways, he is the Father of all things. Right? All of things flow from him. But one of the most radical aspects of Christianity, church, is addressing God as your father, as my father, as our father. Not just a father, but our. In fact, if you actually read the Gospels closely, right, these account of Jesus' life, you'll notice that when the religious rulers get really upset, Right when they start to pick up stones to to try to take Jesus out, do you know usually what it's on the heels of? Of Jesus confessing God as his father and saying that he was equal to the Father. Listen, addressing God as your father is a radical statement. It's a radical statement about what your relationship with him actually is. And that's what we're focusing in on. So how do we get there then, right? How does someone actually get to the point where they can call God not just the Father of eternity, but our Father? I'm glad you asked. I think first we have to actually back up a little bit, though. And we have to turn our attention back to verse 17 of John chapter 3. Because we get some indication of, okay, how did this actually happen then? What was going on? When it says, and for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Might be saved through him. So we should ask, saved from what? Right? So if God so loved the world that he sent his son, and he, and he sent the son so we would be saved by him, what were we needing to be saved from? It's the wrath of God. So we talk about every single Sunday. Because we need to be reminded that ever since the third chapter in the Bible, humanity 
has been rebelling against this perfect, loving God. That we have been doing the things in which God said, that's going to lead to death. That's not how I've designed you to live. It's not going to go well if you walk down that path. And we go, God, you don't know my situation. And we've walked down that path. Or we've taken the very words of God when he said, do this and you will live. Do this and it will go right with you. And we've said, no thanks. I'd rather do it on my own. Right? Every, and this is every single one of us, by the way. Every single one of us has rebelled against the holy creator God. Every single one of us stands guilty by our sin. And so every single one of us then actually deserves wrath. We've broken the law of God. And the Bible says that because of that reality, because of the sin in which we participated in, in the sin in which we were born into, the Bible actually calls us children of wrath. Children of wrath. It's pretty strong language, isn't it? It's, but it's the language of the Bible. That we are not actually naturally born children of God. Now, we're all made in the image and likeness of God. right? That's true of every single person, regardless of what you believe or don't believe. Every single person is born in the image and likeness of God, but not every person is born into the family of God. Nobody is born naturally as a son of God. Naturally, we're born as enemies of God. Enemies of God. So what happens then? Right? Then how do we, how do we move to a direction where we can address God as Father? If in our sin, we're not. Well, this is where just the beauty of this simple passage starts to come to life. Because God did not send punishment in this text. But what did he send? He sent his son. He sent his son to be a propitiation, a payment that satisfied a son that would bear the wrath of God, which we deserve. But Jesus says, I'm going to take that, Father. I want to take that with me to the cross. I want to bear the wrath that they deserved so that they could have the, the very ability, the very means to be reconciled back to you. So God is a sender. He's also a justifier. Right? He, he sent his son. And his work actually flows out of this perfect knowledge of the plan of God. You see, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he's explaining some of this stuff to him, we have to remember that this was not just a plan that, that Jesus was just kind of spurring at the moment. He wasn't just kind of coming up with, with the plan as he went. We've talked about this, that the plan of redemption and the plan of God the Father has always been in place before the foundation of the world. And so I want to look at a passage we looked at last week, but I want to look at it again real quickly. And that's the book of Ephesians, where Paul lays out, I think, some of the, the work of God the Father in a unique way. I'm not going to look at everything, but I just want to read it and point out a couple of items. And pay attention to how this text highlights the work of the Father. Right? So starting in verse 3, it says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight." making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. There's a lot there that we're not going to get into. But let me just point out a couple things of which we saw. Because I think Paul really does a wonderful job of expanding upon the, the narrow focus of the work of God the Father. We see that he is a blesser in Ephesians 1. We see that he's a sender of Christ. We see that he's the chooser of the elect. We see that in love he predestines. Out of the love of, of the Father, he lavishes his people with all wisdom and insight. The Father makes known the mystery of his will. Church, did you see how these are works of God the Father? Way before anything came into existence. What happened with Jesus? What happened with God the Father sending the Son? It was a perfect plan. It was a plan that was talked about way before you and I. And it brings Jesus great delight to tell Nicodemus, Oh, God the Father has been loving this world for a long time. It's just now the fullness of time. It's all coming to fruition. You're going to be able to see this. But there's one particular work of God the Father that I want to spend the rest of our time that we have looking at. Because there's the work of adoption, church. The work of adoption is very significant to our understanding of God as Father. Because even though, and we spend a lot of time at this church talking about this, and it's really important, we're really big believers in talking about how we are justified before the sight of God. How we are justified in a legal way, how our sins are atoned for, right? How in the world can God look at sinners and declare them to be justified? We rightly spend a lot of time on that. It's, it's an, one of the most important doctrines to all of the Christian faith. And I would say it's probably our highest need when it comes to a legal standing before God. But what about our highest privilege? Our highest privilege is that we've been adopted by God. Adopted by God. We've been brought into his family and so that we can be considered sons of God, every single one of us. And I believe this is the highest privilege. Paul, in Galatians 4, he says this. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to do what? To redeem those who are under a law. That's justification. But it keeps going. So that 
we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption as sons. So although our redemption is absolutely important, right, and it's an essential aspect of our plan of redemption that we've been justified, Paul emphasizes throughout his letters, church, that you have not just been justified, you've actually been adopted by the holy God of all creation. You've been brought into his family. We saw this in that Ephesian passage when he says that in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That this adoption was given to us, right? Given to those who have, whom God has chosen. And it was just a big grace-filled gift. We didn't deserve it, but God wanted to lavish that upon us. And here's why it's all important, church. You can only call God your father if you are in his family. You can only call God your father if you are in his family. And the only way for us to be in his family is what? If he brings us into it, right? We can't force our way into God's family. But yet he's able to bring us into his family. It's the work of God the Father. It's all His work. It's God who has determined for the very foundation of this world who are His. And over the course of time, in His own way, and by His own purposes, right, He's drawing those sons, the elect, to Himself. It's this wonderful aspect of God the Father. It's the only way that we can truly call Him Father, church. It's the only way. So our understanding of God as our Father, then, is one of the most important aspects of our entire Christian faith. It's what brings it beauty. It's what brings it alive. And if you don't believe me, maybe you'll believe this wonderful Canadian theologian named Jaya Packer. Listen to this quote. It's long, but it's important. And Jaya Packer, he's since gone to glory, but he's still a wonderful theologian. He says this. He says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Continuing, he says, For everything that Christ has taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Do you know this, church? Do you know God as your Father, not just the Father, but your Father? Because I believe when you understand that, Right? When you begin to understand that, that God the Father not only sent Jesus to save you from your sins, but he also did that in order so he would be able to adopt you into his perfect and forever family, it will change everything about your Christian life. It will change the way that you see the love of God. It will change the way that you see that God went to the greatest lengths possible in order to save those who belong to him. You'll see that 
what great cost, an unimaginable cost for the eternal God the Father to send his eternal son to die in the place of people like you and I. But it is that love, church. It is that love that then is poured out to you, Christian, because of Jesus. It's what Jesus prayed for. It's what he wanted you and I to experience today. The beauty of the adoption is then that God loves you in the same way that he loves the Son. You are in him. Meaning, and pay attention to this. God the Father cannot love you any more or any less than he does his own son. If you are a Christian, that is true of you today. Nothing more, nothing less. Because how he views you is not based on what you have or have not done. It's based on who, church? It's based on the work of his son It's based on the perfect love he has for the Son that you and I do not have the power to change. And thanks be to God for that. Uh, Lastly, I think our adoption gives us this wonderful hope in this world. Because we have been adopted, because we have God as our Father, it can never be changed. Going back to the book of Galatians, let me show you one more text. Actually, I don't have this one, Taylor. I lied to you. It says this in Galatians 4, 7. Because Paul is trying to beat this into the church of Galatia. In the same way, and by beat, I don't mean like abusively, just excitedly. Okay. He says, so you are no longer a slave, Christian, but a son And if a son, then an heir through God. An heir through God. Means if you are a Christian, you're not only redeemed, you're not only justified, but you are considered a full heir of God the Father. That all the spiritual blessings that the Son has are available to you also. They are for you also. Because you are in Christ. It also means... That you can never be unadopted. God the Father will never change his mind in the same way that he never changes his mind on how he views his son. So if you are in him, it's forever. You can't change it. Because you didn't get yourself into it. Right? You didn't make the case of saying, God, this is why you should adopt me. And God looked at the evidence and said, you know what, you're right. I should adopt you. You would be a great addition to my team. That did not happen. Because if that happened, then God would quickly realize that we're not as good as we said we were. Here's the point, church. If you weren't in charge of your adoption, it also means you're not in charge of your perseverance. That if God has brought you into the family, you will always be part of the family. And that's good news for us. God's adoption for you are as final as the words of Jesus on the cross when he yelled out, it is finished. It's why, and we'll get to this in a couple weeks, why God the Father sent the Spirit in Romans 8, it says, who is literally called the Spirit of Adoption. 
so that by whom we can cry out, Abba, Father. Do you know why we can call God our Father? It's because God has done the work to provide the very means for us to be in his family, to be loved by him, and even for us to be able to begin to understand that. The Spirit of God inside of us gives us the actual ability to go, you are my Father. You are my Abba. That term of endearment. It's the Father who before the foundation of the world, church, set in motion the plan of redemption. The plan to send and give the Son, which John 3.16 so clearly tells us. But God the Father also had the plan to send the spirit of adoption. That knowing that once Jesus went to the cross, once Jesus rose from the grave, he could send his spirit to begin to change the hearts of sinners like you and I so that we could see God not just as the Father, but our Father. And I think we first begin to experience this when we pray, right? How do we begin our prayers? How did Jesus teach us How did Jesus teach disciples to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's really out of the overflow of what the Father has done that we can say those words. It's all been about him. It always will be about him. And if, in case you're, you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian this morning, Maybe you know, I'm saying this, you're like, I'm not quite sure if I'm there yet. That's okay. You're welcome here for as long as you want. But it's no accident that you're here, right? We don't believe in coincidences. By God's grace, maybe this morning, He is opening up your own heart and soul to begin to understand that you did need to be saved. But not to figure it out on your own. See what God the Father has done through the person of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can join the rest of us as we sing, Our Father. And what a gift that is. That you can begin to see that you are not left just to wander this world trying to make the best of it, but that you can belong to the forever family who not only had a plan for your salvation, but has a plan for all of eternity. And we're one day closer to that. And what a gift that is. What a gift it is for, to understand and know a little bit more what the work of God the Father is. All right, church, let's go ahead and end there. Let's, let's pray and then we'll respond. Well, Father, I want to just thank you. I want to thank you that that you not only have created this world, but that you have loved your created world, and you loved it so much that you would send your only begotten Son, your only Son, in whom you have always loved and will always love, but you sent him. You sent him to take on the work of atoning for sins. God, thank you for sending Christ, for sending the Christ. And God, as we want to just respond here in just a moment,
God, we know that our response, we, it, it, we don't want to be driven by just mere emotion or mere obligation even. But we want to respond because of the truthfulness of everything which we've spoken about today. We want to respond that you are a saving, a giving, and an adopting God. What a gift that is. Lord, we love you and we need you. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.